Welcome to the Yeshiva Shalmaila. This is David Lichtenstein. This week's topic is how not to go to jail. Why? Because it's not a good place and you love your family and the havoc it does to families is just, it's horrendous. It's Chernobyl. And most people are not aware of how easy it is or what an incredible bully the legal system could be once it has its eyes focused on you. So we're going to be speaking to Aleph. It's an organization that basically has dedicated itself towards the lowest rung of people on the totem pole. The few percent of America, America's, the United States is only 5% of the world's population. More, a greater percentage are in jail, incarcerated than in any other country in the world, including China, North Korea, and Russia. So who created Aleph. Well, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his love for Klal Yisrael was not only for the millions of people he gave dollars to, but it was also to the 90% of Eden who don't know who Avram Avinu is, the friar, that's the whole Kira movement, that he, he changed the entire focus of Chabad from Haskala to Asiya. And who, who did he appoint? He appointed, he asked Rabbi Liska and Rabbi Biarski. I mean, really, grace is Sadiqim. I know before Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, when I need somebody to be misbal for me, I call Rabbi Biarski, among others. So uh, to out of great Abbas Yisrael to focus on this group of the Dachim. And I, I would say, you know, we're coming up to the Chag HaGeula, and, you know, for years I always try, we all try, to always try to invite, like the Lashon Aramimus, to have Yisayimim and Almanas by every Suda. I never thought of it before, but wouldn't it be beautiful if we could start making a focus of inviting the families of incarcerated people or incarcerated people have left two hours Shabbos Sudas to sort of welcome them back now, the whole Yud Gimel Midas was given in the concept of, of tshuva, forgiveness. Shouldn't we be welcoming these people back? We're going to be speaking to Rabbi Levi Landa from Aleph, and he'll be telling us the stories about many of our brothers who are in jail and part of the, the American justice system. I think the United States is 5% of the world's population, but has 20% of the, all the you know, incarcerated individuals in the world are in the United States, 4X the entire world. And he'll be sharing with us some really amazing stories, things that you would never imagine, but things that are really important if you're in business. And I'll share with you one story. A young woman who worked in a mortgage company, she was just really a clerk earning forty dollars or $50,000 a year. The mortgage company was doing things that were illegal, that she did not profit from, had nothing to do with. And the government came in, swooped down, and indicted basically everybody at the firm. And the, you know, the head honchos who had made millions of dollars pleaded guilty. And she refused to. She said, I'm just a clerk. I didn't. And the government gets infuriated when you don't plead. So everybody who pleaded basically turned on her because that was their, their way out. And this young woman with a few young kids got 20 years in jail. And his message is, if something is going on that doesn't smell right, you may not be aware of it. You may not, you may not profit from it. It really doesn't matter. This is one of the things Rabbi Levi Landa will be talking about, things we would never imagine. You couldn't help but see that there was so much that could be avoided and prevented if we took you know, not just a responsive approach, but a proactive approach to educate, to spread awareness, to make people aware of certain things that could um, hopefully negate the, the partial altogether. We'll speak to Willie Rapfogel of the Met Council of Charities, who made a mistake and talks about it and paid a terrible price for it. And just to give you an, uh, another number, uh, that that's probably somewhat shocking to anybody is more than a hundred million 
criminal cases are filed in state and federal courses every courts every year. Ninety-seven point five percent of those cases end in pleas. So anybody who thinks they're doing something relatively minor and they shouldn't get caught has no idea the power of a prosecutor to take that relatively minor thing and come back to you and say, well, if you don't plead guilty and take a two-year two sentence or a five-year sentence, I'm going to put you away for 50 years. We'll be speaking to Ms. Rachel Van Etten, who's the CEO of Olive, who's really, if she, I, I've never met her, but I imagine that she has wings, the wings of an angel. You hear of the things they do, truly, really incredible stories. When I think about a case that I've made a difference, I think about the person in prison who has no one to talk to, who has no reason for living. And instead of passing along that call to somebody else or trying to figure out how to get off the phone as quickly as I can, just spending the time talking to that person, understanding what they're going through, giving them encouragement to go through another day. And I think part of the purpose of this program is, unfortunately, many of Achenu B'nai Yisrael are incarcerated. Um, not greater than the general population, but we should hear about things that we would otherwise not be aware of, of how dangerous it is and the impact of families. There's just the incredible impact of families. We'll speak to these people and see the incredible malach and what they do for these families. Before we go to our guests, I want to go through some of the voicemails, and we do get very many voicemails. Here is a, a voicemail that I appreciated of somebody who basically says, if you listen to headlines, you really get well-educated. It's been a you know a couple months, actually, since I last listened to one of your uh, podcasts, and I started listening again this week, and I became very nostalgic. It's, just, it's such a great, practical, interesting show that I think is so, like, important just to, you know, bring Tehran Halacha into just, you know, the, the way just people think, people run their lives, etc., just bringing down Halacha kind of into that sphere. And it's also just a great, like, you know, Elam Haza is full of in terms of, you know, podcasts and things like that. It's great to just hear, you know, Yiddishkeit coming through um, in such a practical uh, way that, you know, people can relate to. Yes, I found this particularly interesting, you know, enjoyable, because that's how a goal. Many of life's problems, we're not taught about in Yeshiva, almost any of these topics, but these are really the topics that you're going to come across in life. Here's a voicemail from a fellow in England who seems to have a real problem with uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Zaks, Echetzalek Levracha, because he doesn't fit into his box as to what a gadol should look like. I mean, he, he, you know, he had a little bit of a shaved beard on the side, he went to college, Here's what he speaks, says. Hello, I'm the young man who left the comment about drinks and sex. James Sachs was a reform rabbi. A youth who goes to college isn't considered a gozel ado. It's just, we never had gozel ado who went to college, okay? It was never Makobo. Do you know what he said in, in the pre-war about people who went to college? They were off! Off the mat! Off the mat! Off the mat! So here's what I would like to respond to this question. You can't be a Gadol Yisrael if you went to college. Now, there are certainly those who believe that. I mean, I've heard over from one, uh, actually it was a Satmar Chassid, he said, from Zmiras on Shabbos, he said, he said over from the Shin of Arav, he, he who will lead, he never had to have a minute outside, you know, the walls of a yeshiva or a Beis or a Shul, etc. 
But let's look at it. Let's see, are there G'daylim who did go to college? So, first one that would come to mind is the Aruch Laner, Reb Yaakov Etliga. He was a contemporary younger than Reb Kiveg and Lachsam Saifa, but Reb Kiveg wrote Hagoyis on the Bikura Yankif, pages of Hagoyis, and um, he went to uh, the University of, w- of Würzburg when he, was, uh, when he lived in, in Germany. And by the way, his Talmidim, uh, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer and Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch all went to a college, as did more recently. Look, the Lubavitcher Rebbe has a doctorate, uh, and look, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's influence on the world. It's hard to imagine anybody, really, few people in the Mamish Mimayshad Maisha who had an influence. You know, the 90% of the world that's not from who touches them, if anybody, it's it's the Lubavitcher Rebbe and his Shluchim. Then you have Rabbi Shaber Salavechik, who, anybody who's learned his Torah, certainly one of the greatest Lamdim who will ever touch till Mashiach comes, the Western, you know, Western Hemisphere. And then you have, uh, you had Rav Hutna, the, my Rebbe Rav Hutna, look, the way he changed Chumash. I mean, who who, who learns, which Litvak learns Chumash the same way after Rav Hutna? And then you had, um, re- as recently as the head of that Guda, who was the Novominsker Rebbe, went to college. Now, I could see this, this fellow from England, who seems to be a little bit of a hothead, saying that these are none of the above are G'daylum, but I would say that, you know, it's hard to say that when Rabbi Kivega writes on the um, Darach Laner, he says, even though I'm tired and I got you safer and it's hard for me, but because of Roi Havasi, my, my great love for you, Rabbi Kivega writes towards the end of his life, it's I think a year or two before he died, um, and when he was already, the uh, Darach Laner was probably in his 50s already, he says, my, I cannot refrain from writing, and he sends him back pages of, of Hagois. So I would then say it's really a machlekes between this fellow from England and Reb Kivega. Now, clearly I'm not saying that college is for everyone. It's clearly not. And most of the G'dayalim did not go to college. But there are certainly those who went and, and were G'dayalim. And when he makes fun that, you know, I said that Rabbi Sachs was Makayim Adabra and Prince Charles looked up to him. The king of England now looked up to him as somebody eminent. And he says, who's Prince Charles? Well, you have to make a bracha when you see Prince Charles. So he mocks Prince Charles. But I would say like this, even to sort of, quote unquote, the, the, the extreme right wing, I would say like this. That when people ask about the Satmar Rebbe, you know, who clearly was totally anti-Israel, etc., and when you speak to many intelligent Haredim, they'll say, look, we don't agree with his shita, but if we need people like that, because if he hadn't spoken up, all of from Eden wouldn't become Zionists. You need somebody who takes totally, you need somebody on the, an outlier to sort of, to, to keep the center where it is. And I would say, I would use the same argument. Do we need everybody to go to college to be? Obviously not. But is it important that we have somebody who could speak to a Prince Charles, who's the King of England? Do we need somebody who could speak to the UN? Do we need somebody who could debate the great Kaifrim of our generation? And there are some really amazing videos of Rabbi Sachs interviewing the greatest, not debating the greatest Kaifrim, the greatest atheists in the world, and, and, and winning and coming out really, you know, making them look bad. We absolutely do need people like that. So it's sort of, I would put interestingly, Rabbi. By Sachs and the Satmarab on the same scale on that. Yes, we need highly educated people, not necessarily to become our G'daylam, but because we need G'daylam who can talk to the atheists of the world. This would be my response to this fellow from England. Now let's go to a few other interesting phone calls that we had. So three weeks ago we had a program and we asked a question based on what's going on in Eretz Yisrael, you know, they want to unseat the Supreme Court. We said, what would be the halacha if Klal Yisrael was right from and we actually had the authority? Would the entire country have to go be Dintaira? That was the, the question. In other words, if you, if you caught a Ganif, would, would you say that, um, 
you, you would need you would need Hasra and to aid him, or you can't punish him, right? Or somebody who was Ma'ana Saisha, would he just have to pay Shkalim and that would be the end of it? So we got a call from somebody who said, Listen, the whole Medina is not Al Pihalacha and we should give it back to the UN. Um down the whole discussion and the whole show because clearly the last prayer is to do Setmoya 51 with some Haraja Jews should go over to the UN give them over the whole Medina because as known to all the Medina is also a Bidura for our Bidula all that um, and it's borrowed and not slightest of so I don't even understand why the whole so irrelevant, the whole discussion would go right over to the UN and give over the Medina and have no chance with this. So my response was, it's true that the the the, the, the Vriyayal wrote, you know, about the Gimel Shvuis, you know, I want to go back to Eretz Yisrael. But I said, first of all, it's drush, it's not halacha. And secondly, I said, it certainly doesn't rise to the level of Yerig Valyavar. I mean, if you gave it back to the UN, I, I listed 13 incidents of where the UN troops protected various classes of people, and there were tremendous massacres, or almost a million Tutsis were killed by the Hutus in, in, uh, in Rwanda, etc. I said, is it worth killing Jews? Because of even if you say the Gimel Shvuas is halacha, and it's not agada, but it certainly doesn't rise to the level of Yerig Valyavar. And I got a bunch of calls back, basically saying the Satmar Rebbeshita is, is that no, that the, uh, the Gimel Shvu is rise to the level of Yerig Valyavar, and it's based on a maral. And, and it's really the core of the entire Devriyoyal revolves around this maral who says it's Yerig Valyavar. And the Satmar Rebbe asks the obvious question. He says, where did the maral get this from, that it's Yerig Valyavar, uh, the, the, the Gimel Shvu, is the, the dinam of Yerig Valyavar is only about Zara Gilei Rai Shichazdav, and we learn it out of Xeris HaKasav. There's certainly no hekish, right, from uh, Naramurasa to, uh, to the Gimel Shvu, which had occurred much later. So that was our the, that was our, the the, the, the Satmar Rebbe's question and the Satmar Rebbe's answer at the end of the Sefer he's you know eighty pages later he says you know there's a concept that you can't be mezayif the Torah in other words you can't tell a guy if they say like, today politically correct what is what does the Torah believe about gays and you say oh it's perfectly fine no that's ziyuf Torah and it's yerig valyavar so he's saying going against the uh, the gimel uh, the the gimel shvuis is a type of uh, being kaifer in the Torah and since it's kaifer in the Torah it's yerig that's basically the core of the Satmar Rebbe, his, why he says it's Yerig Valyavar, Zionism, even though post-World War II, everybody would agree that it's necessary. So it's based on this morale, and um, and uh, and his answer is that it's because it blibes, uh, it's Yerig Valyavar, because it blibes Kfira in the Torah. That's basically the, the crux, beginning and end of the Divrayal, you know, with a lot of beautiful Torah in the middle. So here is some... New callers who who had a problem with what my what I said was I said it was drush. I didn't respond yet to the Yarek Valyava, but here are some callers. Hi, Rebbeles. I just want to let you know I carry a lot of time talking about Zionism and about everything. As if you are an expert, before you talk anything more about Zionism, please um, learn the paper on myself because before opening that paper, you. You have no right to talk about it. He said, you started off that if if the if the show is true, it's Allah and not a Gaza, and it's a big, big if. So uh, I really don't understand what I mean, because at least you have to stick to showing him who brings the Allah, the Piscari on the spot. So with the Kifidal brings the Allah, it shows to Rush, it's in the Kifid, it shows to Rush, it shows to Rush, and it's in the base, 
in the Ramban Igustaman, and the Ramban in Maimar Gulva is Ois Aluf. I stick to trying to bring Valacha. It's a bit of Valacha all over the place. I'm around at the Trolls in Perichovdal. He brings that, he brings that, 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 the Shalash Ruz is now Laru and the Jihar Goyavu. Okay, so they said. Go learn the Divri Yael. I actually went out and I got the Divri Yael. I, uh, I went through it. I'd, I'd done it before many years ago. I didn't remember it, but I went through it. So here's my response would be to um, this fellow who says that it's halacha. And he quotes uh, a number of sources. It's true the Piskiriyaz does bring it and the Rivash and the Rajbash bring it. But the Geris Taman says, which is from the Rambam, is, uh, and it's like a Musa letter to, or a Chizuk letter to, is not a halacha letter. And in it he writes, Right, so Rambam doesn't bring it Allah, nor does the Ramban and the Sefer Gagula bring it Allah. But here's he, he brings it more like you know, also in, 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 in I think in an agudistic way. But here's what I would say to those who say that it's Allah. I would say that just Clolius on my Yitzra The last time I checked, I don't know. There's a hundred thousand Sfarim. Right, I mean, been you know Gedali Yisrael going back, you know, I guess since before the Zmana Mishnah, I guess it was the Vim, then it became, in, but in the you know, is this hundred thousand Sfarim? No, no, you know, no kidding. So there are lots of opinions, and right, and many opinions from you know big Talmud Chachamim Gainim that we don't name on Lalach, even though they were written. For example, do you know that there's a? I'll probably get criticized for naming you know these, but for example, there's an opinion uh, in, in 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 big Paiskim that there's no there's no Sarbi Isha Erva, no no need anymore for Sheitlach anymore, you know, post it, when it became modern and when the Jews left Arabia and it was kind of, and it's based on how to learn Shad and Arashi and Saita. So there's no more need for recovering your hair. Now, clearly, it's true that there's such a halacha, but it's not on Genomen. So you bring a Riyaz, a Piske Riyaz and a Ribash and a Rajbash. I would just ask any of the calls if they know any other halacha from the Rajbash besides his famous Shittas and Tarifas, etc. But how does the Derech halacha go by Klal Yisrael? Well, it starts with the Rif. Then you have the Rush and the Rambam. These are the three Rishayim that, from there, based on how they paskin, then you have the Tur, right? Then you have the Beis Yosef, right? Then you have the Shulchan Aruch, and ultimately the Ramah. So it could be a Halacha, but if it's not brought by, in, in this line of the G'dayli HaPaiskim, yeah, if you, you know, I guess there's, there's many, many, there's a, thousands of interesting opinions out there brought Halacha that are just not Ungenum and in Klal Yisrael. So here's what's interesting. The Rambam, besides the fact that it, it looks like a drush gemara, I mean, if you look in the in the uh, in the marsha in the back, it's the small letters, the drush. But the Rambam in this gemara in Subis Kofiud, he paskins the gemara right before that. What does the gemara say right before that? He brings in Hilchas Malachim. He paskins the gemara right afterwards, right afterwards, and this gemara he deletes. He he who omits. He's obviously learning that it's a it's a drush. It's not la'alacha, as does the riff, uh, the, 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 the rush, uh, um, the tur, uh, the base Yosef, the ramah, right? So it's a trifecta. Nobody paskins like this kibara. It's, it's true that there's a riyaz who paskins like this kibara. But again, there are, you know, in the hundred thousand svarim, there's going to be many opinions that paskin almost everything. But that's not how we call Yisrael paskins. That's as far as the, that it's la'alacha. Now, as, as far as the, those who wrote to me that, the, that it's a maral, so here's what I would respond to those who wrote it to Maral. The Maral, interestingly, who says Yerig, it's Yerig Valyav, all right? Which, how to learn shot in the Maral, is, I don't agree with the way, um, it's very debatable how to learn what, what the Maral means. I'll give you a few other ways to understand the Maral that it's not Yerig Valyav. But the Maral is not even going on the Gemara. He's going on a Medrish in Shira Shirim Rabbah. Now, 
first of all, everybody agrees that you don't paskin from a medrash. Even if you hold you paskin from an agadata, and there are certain opinions that hold you from you paskin from agadata, nobody's paskining from a medrash. So you have a medrash in Shira Shiram Rabbah that brings four different opinions as to how the Rabbani Shalom was Majbiya Klal Yisrael. And one of the four opinions is this opinion of the Rabbanon that it's B'doyre Shal Shmad, it's Yarek Val Yavar, the way the Divriya learns. So, so my question to you is, A, we don't paskin like the Gemara, B, if you want to paskin like an Agadata, whatever, against all the G'dayli Apaiskim, we certainly don't paskin like a Medrash, right? So the morale is going on a Medrash, and it's one of four opinions in the Medrash. So I would ask, who told you that, who told anybody that this is the four, one of the four Tzadim in the Medrash that we paskin like? Maybe you go with the other three Tzadim in the Medrash that it's not Yerig Val Yavar. So it's, 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 it's just to say Yerig Val Yavar, people should die because of a Medrash in Shirim Shirim Rabbah, one of four opinions in the Medrash. By the way, when I say you don't, we don't paskin like a Medrash, it's the Shaila Sutchuvas Noida Behuda, a famous Chuva Yeridaisim in Kufsamachalaf. I mean he says he says Hamedrashim Vagodis Iker Kavanasam Al Hamusar Vala Ramazim Vala Mishalam Shemben Vakoil Ikradas Aval Ain Iker Kavanasam Al Piski Halochis Lachain Ain Lumade Mehem Lapsak Halocha Klal. Right, this is the on Medrash, nobody uh, holds that on a, a, a Shira Shirim Rabbah's and a Karafa Halacha. That's my opinion. We have a lot of Talmud Chachamim listening. If you if you could point out in the Shulchan Aruch where we paskin like a medrash, I'd greatly appreciate it. But I'm basing my my thing on on uh, I'm being soimich myself on the, the great plates of the night of Yehuda. Even in the uh, Maral, who he wants to that the, the, the real wants to say that he means it's uh, it's Yerig Val Yavar. I I I think there's another way to learn the Maral because it's very difficult to understand where did the Maral get this from that it's Yerig Val Yavar. There's no Xerasakasa for it. The Maral is saying the fourth tzad in the in the fourth Mandiyamar in the uh, in the Medrash says Hishbiyam B'doyri Shal Shmad. It's the exact lashon. So the Maral explains it the way I understand possibly understanding the Maral is the halacha by B'doyri Shal Shmad is that Yenerag even al Arkas of the Masani. If somebody says B'doyri Shal Shmad that wearing red laces is a sign of Avodah so you have to be Nerag if he says uh, please wear red laces. And B'doyri Shal Shmad is very chamer. So I understand he's saying Hishbiyam B'doyri Shal Shmad possibly that if in a B'doyri Shal Shmad you want to reject the, the, the Shmad by going back to Eretz Yisrael, and, but that's a way sort of to reject the Derish al Shmad. He says, no, you're not even allowed to do that, but Derish al Shmad, because the Derish al Shmad is Yerik Val Yavar, and that would be a Geder of Yavar. In other words, being Kaifer in the Gzeira of Derish al Shmad also has a din of Shmad. That's how the Mara learns you. You know, it's a Chiddush, and obviously it's only one opinion in the, it's according to one opinion of four in the Medrash Rabbah. So he's not saying any Chiddush that Gimel Shu is his Derish al Shmad. He's saying, since he's saying, Hishbiyam B'Derish al Shmad, and by Derish al Shmad is always a din of Yerig Val Yavar, a Kfira in Golas during a Derish al Shmad also has a din of Yerig Val Yavar. Which is a chiddush, but it's not a very big chiddush. Now, as far as the answer that the way the the the, the Vriyoyal understands in the in the morale that it's it really is Yerig Val Yavar according to the single shita in the uh, in the uh, in the in the Shirashirim, in Medr Shirashirim, he says. So how, where did the morale get it? For how could it be? So he says because you're being kaifer in the Rabbeinu Shalolam by going up, you're being kaifer in the Gullus. So I, I would just ask the following questions. First of all, every hate 
has a, a an element of kfir in it. If a guy steals, he's denying that the Rabbi Shalom is watching him, right? He's he's obviously saying, hey, God isn't watching. I wouldn't. If he, if he believed that I in Raya, he wouldn't be stealing. Every Avera that we do, there's some element of kfir in it. Does every Avera then become an element of, of Yerig Valyavar? Elamai, you're going to say over here, since he's doing it, to go connect the das of the Rabbi Shalom of the Gala. So let's see, I says, I'm not doing it to go connect the das of the Shalom of I'm just going because I want to save my life. I'm going because this is you know, person is supposed to run away if somebody's trying to kill him. I have no kavana about ending the Gullahs, etc. So if you're going up to Eretz Yisrael because it's a safe amakim lonus shama, there's bechlal no kfira in that situation at all. So the answer of the of, of the Divriyayal to explain this morale, I think is very difficult to say that every chait or chait is an element of kfira. So then I, I guess every chait almost could be shail of Yarek Valyavar. And uh, over here particularly, there doesn't have to be where I'm saying I'm doing it for chait. I'm doing it for the reason of loyala b'chaim. I'm doing it to be to bring the kates earlier. I'm doing it because it's safe. How many people go to Eretz Yisrael and say, oh, the kates is early? How many people are going? Because my kids are there. It's a nice place to live. I believe it's it's a safe place, etc. Because, I, because I'm, I'm being doich the kates. So I, I just honestly don't understand that. But even if you name on what he's saying, it's still one in four shittas. In a shira shirim rabba, one of four, right? So even if you're paskin like that, God is of a Gemara, you don't paskin like a medrash. Even if you're paskin like the medrash, it's one of four opinions in the medrash. This is what I would respond to those. And, and last but not least is that you know, he said, give it back to the UN, which would obviously cause a tremendous amount of Jewish death. I mean, who would go to Eretz Yisrael for Sukkot or for Pesach and send their kids to learn there if the UN, if, you, if the only thing between you and the Arabs and the Palestinians was the UN? Lamaisa, we have, we, we listed many, many G'daylam, like Rabbi Chaim the etc., etc., who all opined as to how Klal Yisrael could run as a, as a halachic state. So clearly they, they believed we could live there. So that's my response to these, um, to those who wrote the letters, how's that? Before we go to our um, guests, I would like to say a short vart. You know, it's Rosh Chodesh Nissen, and this is the Chag HaGeula. And I would like to share with you a thought. You can understand that on many levels, and I'm going to look at it at a, a different way than maybe you have in the past. When I come to Pesach, one of the things I ask is, how can I get out of Mitzrayim? What's preventing me from being the biggest person I could be? Who's my parry, and what's my Mitzrayim? What's keeping me? And I think each of us, almost around the Pesach table, if you you have adults, you say, what's your Mitzrayim and who's your Pari? And how this year can you really have a Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? And I'll share with you a story. It was many years ago. I was by some type of an Agudah event. I don't remember where. And there was a fellow there. His name was Benny Fishoff. And Benny was a survivor of, uh, he, well, he, he didn't go through the camps. He went through Shanghai, I believe. But he lost everybody in the Holocaust. And he came to America. And he was very successful. I went over to him and I schmoozed with him and he was a lajayid. He spoke beautiful Yiddish. And I said to him, like, how did you do it? By coming with nothing. You lost your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your uncles, everybody, the whole family. How did you come out and not just curl into a womb and cry, be a victim? And he said, you know, in the beginning it was really hard. He said, but it was my, I don't remember if he said it was his first or second year coming to America. And it was by the Seder. And he said, I was sitting by the Seder. And yeah, I was, he says, I was terrified. Well, what type of terror? You know, the fear of the unknown. He didn't, he said, I didn't speak English. I didn't know any business. He says, I was feared of failure. You know, if I had a few dollars. Like, you know, I, if I lost it, I was done. 
And I self-doubt. I mean, you know, I was I I wasn't American. I was a total foreigner. Americans didn't particularly love from Eden at that point. I don't know if it's changed, but then it was a lot worse. And um, whatever was left of my chevra, if I failed, they would have looked at me. And you know, he took the chance. He says I had no resources. So not only did I have fears, but he says I had no resources. I had very little money. And he says, and societally, you know, to go out into the big world, it wasn't what we were doing. We were like sort of huddling in our ghetto. And he said, I was sitting by all the, these are all the fears. This is the Mitzrayim. This was his Mitzrayim. And he says, I was sitting by the Seder and I was listening to the story of the Seder, how we came from slaves. Right? And you know what? Kirvanu Hashem there, Sinai. We went from Avadim to Bnei Malachim. He said, and I said, I said, Mitzrayim, we came out of Mitzrayim. You can't be lower. And look how high we got. And he said, Dusimia. He said, I have nothing. But he said, I, I knew the story. He says, I, I knew the story of the Haggadah. Our story is the story of nothing. Avadim Hayinu, going all the way to great success. So he said, I knew that if as Yidin Kenan does teen, he said, I knew, I knew this. He didn't say our DNA, he didn't have DNA, but he says, I, I saw the Seder as my story. Look at, you know, the resilience, the power, the dreams of being a Yid. Basically, he says, Ichab Gilep the Seder. My life, he said, I live the Seder. And it's interesting when you look at it, right? What is the Seder? You have uh, on the Kaira, you have Mur, you have Chazeres, you have Chareses, is for the, the mud that they had to go through. You have the Karpas with all the tears. And what's on top? On top is the Zroya for the Pesach and for the Chagiga. We got out and look what we created. We went to the Beis Migdash and we brought Karbanas. So what's the story? The story of the Seder is the story of resilience. It's the story of mission. It's the story of dreams. It's the story of starting at the bottom and making it all the way to the top. So whatever my Mitzrayim is or your Mitzrayim is, when we sit by the Seder, the Seder tells us that we can do it. So I wish you all Chag Kashiv Sameach. I think we have one more program before Yam Dev. And may it be the year that each one of us has the Yitzias Mitzrayim, that each one of us finds that Paray, finds those walls that are preventing us from living the life of our dreams and that we go to Gula. Next year, we would look back and we say, wow, I really had Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Let's go to our riddle of the week. This week, you know, it's Vayikros, we're going to ask two Kodshim Shailos. The first one is, the Shachatis ben HaBakr Lufne Hashem Sirashi says, But a shechita is kasha bizarre. Shechita of a carbon of a, in the Beis HaMikdash of Kadshim is kasha bizarre. You don't need a, a kain for shechita. To the Beis HaLevi, Chelig Beis and Tesais Aleph, is medayik from Rashi that even though the halacha is that you learn from this pasik that is zar is kasha lishchait carbon, but Shabbos, if he's bringing a carbon, then only a kain. And he's medayikit from Rashi in Yevamith, Lamed Gimel, Lamed Beis, Dever Yamasal, Shechita Bazar. And the Beis Halevi says he aside. He says, even though a Yisrael is Kasha Beshchita, so then why can't he do it on Shabbos? He says, because Avoida it's not. And to be Deich Shabbos, it's not enough that it's a Shechita of a carbon, it has to have a Shem Avoida on it. And then the Beis Halevi is Moisif. He says, I, if it's not Avoida, then why can, if the Kayin does it? He says, if the Kayin does it, then it gets a Shem Avoida. 
That's the aside of the Beis HaLevi. Chayre, it's a pella on the Beis HaLevi from a Mishnah Mephoreshes, Psachim Samach Dalad Amar Aleph, they're what? Shachat Yisrael v'kibol kain kemaseyu b'choyel kach maseyu b'shabes, that a Yisrael could shech the carbon Pesach on Shabbos. So the question is, according to the Beis HaLevi's Yisrael, that the Shechit of Yisrael, even if it's Kasha, never gets a Shem Avoida, and to be Doich Shabbos and either Shem Avoida. So the question is, why by carbon Pesach do you say that a, a Shechit of Yisrael is Kasha even on Shabbos? That's the question that we're going to ask on the Beis HaLevi. That's our first riddle. Our second riddle is, Pasig says, He brings a mincha, a asira sa'ifa silas. And in Taras Gehanim, what does it say? Rabbi Hudaimer, Chaviva mitzvah b'shayt. Why doesn't this Araman who's bringing a mincha wait till he makes some money and bring a real carbon? So he says, Chaviva mitzvah b'shayta. Better to bring the carbon oimer uh, now, and you don't wait till one day you're an usher. Seize the moment. Look at the Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shai, to seize the moment today, bring what you have. Tomorrow you'll be rich. Okay, right now this is what you could afford. Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shai, don't wait till you become rich. Now the, the Ramah says in Simen Chavhei that if a person has Tfilin Mizumanim B'Yadai and he doesn't have Tzitzis, he shouldn't wait for his Tzitzis, he should put on his Tfilin. Before the Tzitzis, do what you have, the Mitzvah. And what does the Magen Avram say? Because you don't wait for a Mitzvah, and he brings the Mekoyer from this, Shiu Mitzvah that you don't wait by the, the this this Ani doesn't wait to become rich, because the Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shaita, the same thing, Chaviva Mitzvah B'Shaita. Your, your Tzitzis are at home, your Tzvillin say, I put on the Tzitzis, when the Tzvillin come, then you, when the Tzitzis come, then you'll put on the Tzitzis. L'chayr, it's a, a Shverazach. Buy the Ani, who says he's going to become rich? He could get rich now. He could wait a year. It could be five years. So it's something that's not in front of him, and it's not biyadai even more. It's not biyadai. So Allah is shiwi mitzvah leimishaninan. Here it's naming on that you have tefillin, you have tzitzis. Somebody's bringing them from your house. Maybe they're bringing them later. But it's not something that you're going to have to wait a year for, six months, five years. Shiwi mitzvah leimishaninan from the case by by Tyrus Kainim is somebody who can't afford. One day he will afford. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Here the tzitzis are right in front of you. L'chayra, it's a uh, it's a it's a dava it's a pella on the magen avram the tzushtel and this by the way I don't want to give, I could speak for a long time in this magen avram because very negay in other areas of halacha l'mashal kiddush levana do you nemant it's better to do it behidur you know matzah shabbos or should you do it earlier shalai so it becomes this whole shaila with machloek is true masadeshen we're not going to get into that now all I'm asking is the chayr tzushtel of the magen avram is a very sfer tzushtel these are our two riddles of the week. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's uh, 02-372-0304. Let's go to our fabulous Shir. Joining us from Toronto is Rabbi Levi Landa. He works for Aleph. He runs Project 432, which is Aleph's education arm. Welcome, Rabbi Levi. Thank you so much. Shalom Aleichem. Rabbi Levi, what is Project 432? Project 432 is really born from, you know, Aleph's 
many years of experience supporting our fellow Yidin who sadly find themselves caught up in the in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, we, we witnessed firsthand what happens to Mashpacha, an individual, um, the heartache that this, this issue can, can bring about. And Aleph was very much a reactive organization responding to these crises, trying to be there in every way possible. And, you know, the growth of what Aleph has, Baruch Hashem, been able to provide people has really grown re- responding to needs that, uh, that people had. And at this point, this begins all the way pre-sentencing. Um, and then we're there throughout the whole, the whole journey, um, including when they emerge on the other side and they're trying to, to rebuild and, and repair. Um, and, and as we were, you know, watching and, and witnessing these stories, um, you couldn't help but see that there was so much that could be avoided and prevented if we took, you know, not just a responsive approach, but a proactive approach to educate, to spread awareness, to make people aware of certain things that could um, hopefully negate the the partial altogether. So that really is the impetus behind Project 432, to to reach people at an earlier stage when we're not we're not responding, but we're helping them avert the thing entirely. So before you tell us um, how you go about this and what the education is, you, you spoke about you witnessed the heartache, what it does to people in the family. Share with us one story that sticks out in your mind. Um, I remember hearing from from someone who was bar mitzvah age when their father was serving. Um, he was actually in home confinement at the time. So this boy had to have his bar mitzvah at home. He didn't have the typical the typical Suda in a in a hall, but he he shared with me that besides for that whole parson and him having to to face being different in that way, that two officers decided to come in and do their sweep as they're entitled to do, but they did it just as he was delivering his bar mitzvah pilpul. And and he shared with me the you know the impact that that's had on him. He's now he's now on his thirties, and I was able to I was able to feel that very very clearly. I I heard recently um, a young girl. This was you know, much younger girl, maybe four or five years old. But every single time that she sees, you know, a car that is the same color or remotely resembles the shape of her father's car, she's she's calling out the window, Tati Tati, thinking that he's coming home and her mother has to explain to him, or explain to her that this is, you know, it's not Tati's car. Um, so the it, it's really, really hard to describe when you see it up front. And, and Baruch Hashem, you know, we, we like to say, if you don't know anything about Alice, that's probably... A good thing. Alice has always operated, you know, on a need-to-know basis. But when you do see the parsha, you know, up close, it's really hard to put into words the the effect, and it's it's a long-lasting effect. It's not just, you know, when somebody is um, sadly investigated, if they're charged, until they go through the whole. It's a tremendous just the the fear of the unknown, the stress, what it does to a family financially, what it does to a family emotionally, what it does between parents and children, a wife who's left, you know, to try to pick up the pieces and now is the sole breadwinner. You have, you know, the, the shame and stigma. You have, you know, we see how often, sometimes there are tremendous examples of chesed and community support people, but often sometimes people find themselves really alone and they discover who their true friends are and it's extremely painful. Um, so it's really hard to describe. The, the the fallout is is enormous, and the trauma reverberates, and it's something that a family has to deal with. And even when the person is, you know, finally released, it's not over. It's not behind them. Um, 
the effects of trying to earn a livelihood with that, you know, with that history and trying to heal emotionally from it. Um, I know, you know, you know, the, the tremendous work that your Rebison is doing and we're extremely grateful for that. It's, it, it really is. Um, it's something that leaves just a very, a very deep scar. So what, so tell us about project 42, educate our alum. Project 432. First of all, it's, the name Project 432 is for the Sefer 432nd Mitzvah of Yerush Hashem, which really was to, to frame this, you know, at the highest levels, you know, not just about avoiding the terrible consequences of the criminal justice system, but to elevate the, the discussion and the way that we approach this as a, as a community in terms of serving, serving Hashem by how we can conduct ourselves in financial matters, that this is a, it's a part of Aveda Hashem. Um, and we began, really, the, the, the genesis for Project 432 was we, we did a robust listening tour um, with all types of Askanim, Mechanchim, Rabbanim, who had valuable insight and guidance on, on this issue. And we also spoke to people who always had been fortunate to help. And we did in-depth interviews, I would say, and we learned a tremendous amount. But I would say that at this point, we've probably done this with about 30 individuals, where we asked them a question, which, you know, or a series of questions, which really hadn't been the focus of our interaction with them. Typically, it's how can we help? What are you going through? What's the, what's the latest? What's needed? This was to take a step back and to ask someone, you know, from your perspective, how, how did we get here? And, you know, if you had the miracle of a time machine, which, where, where would you go back to to perhaps change the trajectory of this, of this story so that it has a different outcome? And um, with the benefit of hindsight, what would you tell somebody who's, you know, facing a similar decision or who's in your situation or something, or some, something close to it so that they could learn, they could learn from your story? So how can we use the knowledge that we've gained from people who have sadly have to go through this so we can help others um, stay safe and avoid and and avoid it. So that was really the beginning of what guided us in terms of the. And what did you, know, you discover? What did you discover? We discovered that almost actually there may be one or two outliers, but almost without without exception, that things fell into into one of three general general categories. Number one, um, ignorance. There's a tremendous amount that could happen without a person having any intention whatsoever. Um, you don't know, you don't know what you don't know. And number two, that, um, there's often so much pressures that a person is facing, um, financial pressure. They're trying to just keep, keep a family going that even if there's some awareness that maybe it's in, it's in a gray area or it's something that in some ways in, is improper, um, that it's very, it's very easy for a number of different reasons for things to be, for things to be rationalized. The third, the third category is, you know, where, where there really is in some way an intent to, to circumvent the system. You know, we, we would not be accurate if we didn't say that we, we see that as well. You know, the, the Ibrahim, the someone who, you know, really set out in some way to out, to outsmart the system. So, so give us an and, example, give me an example of ignorance. An example of ignorance is, you know, somebody, somebody who might be asked to, to count large, large amounts of cash. 
and he's entirely, entirely unaware of, of what money laundering is, the parameters of that. Well, well, can, well, well, but counting itself is nothing illegal about. Um, unless, unless it's part of, you're, you're deemed, you know, an integral part of uh, illegal operation. And, and this, is, this is where, you know, this is where people really need to know that, you know, I think sometimes our, our basic hanukha towards this is, if I don't know 100% that this is something, that this is something illegal. So give us the example of the person who was counting large amounts of cash. What type of an operation was it? It was it was tax it was tax evasion it was money that was being bought ac- bought across the border um, and he knew and, and he knew and he knew was being b- b- brought across the border no but he he the he was found that he should have he should have known and at one point yeah. I believe this but where was he I like give us give us like understanding like what where was he that this happened like I, if somebody I, I, if you're sitting in your dining room and somebody says could you please count this cash for me I mean it's got to be more than that no. So it, it, it crept up on him a, a little bit in the beginning. In the beginning, perhaps you don't ask you don't ask too many questions, and then I need somebody I need somebody that I can trust to to count large amounts of cash, and then um, you know you'll you'll pass it along you'll pass it along to uh, a courier. It sounds, it sounds very that doesn't honestly that doesn't sound ignorant. It's like we're on large amounts of cash with credit cards. I mean, when you see large amounts of cash, anybody, who, where do large amounts of cash come from anymore? You know, I, you, there's a lot that we see with cash. I think there's a there's a tremendous ignorance around um, how dangerous it is to deal with with large amounts of cash. Okay, um, give us another you know, I, another ignorance example. I think you have you have a lot of examples where people overlook the the need for for due diligence, they they fail to recognize the extent to which they're responsible, not just for what you're doing, but what somebody else who you have some type of a business operation might be doing. Take take for example somebody who's in a sees themselves that they're in a subsidiary role in a in a in a business. Okay, they they're they're working in a business. Everything is is perfe- perfectly legal. The business is operating you know, medical labs, they're in an administrative role and they're working for the company for years, nothing nothing out of out of the ordinary. They're moved all of a sudden to a, a different department where they begin to realize that there are essentially shell labs, labs that exist on paper, they have all of the appearances of, of being legit. They're but they're billing for procedures that never happened and getting referrals that perhaps aren't accurate, whatever whatever the specifics are, and and this is a a, a single mom who you know is is relying is relying on this to sustain her kids, to sustain to sustain her family, and says this was going on long before long before I came and and was involved in this particular work. It's going to go on regardless, and and makes makes a decision that has extreme consequences, life, life-changing consequences, you know, that we can't even imagine. Um, and, and it gets, you know, they, they are caught up. They are caught up in this. Now, uh, so wait, 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 let me, let me have my understanding like this. You're saying if a person works in a business and they sense, or they have a feeling that there's something illegal going on and their attitude is, look, I just work here. I don't own it. I'm not betting from, from it. I'm just a cog in the wheel. Exactly. They can, I'm not, they can still go to jail for a long time. That's is that your message? 
an extremely an extremely long time and saying that I'm not the one who's I'm not the one who's making millions. I'm making the same paycheck that I was getting before I had any inkling that there's something untoward going on over here. And they, can, and they can go to jail for a very long time. Like, I think there was one person who was sentenced like, for 25 years or something. It was young kids. There was an Olive case. Yes. Yes. 20, yeah. 20 years. Yeah. 20, and and 20 basically, years. basically, the government doesn't care that you didn't profit from it. They don't care that you were a cog in the wheel. They didn't care that there's somebody bigger. There's some prosecutor who's going to say, um, I want to get reelected as prosecutor and show good numbers. And therefore, I'm going to say you were involved. You should have known. And ignorance is not a plea. And therefore, you're guilty and you're going away for a long time. Is that basically your message? Yeah, the, the system, the system could sometimes be harsh. And there's a myth that when it comes to financial crimes, that it's a slap on the wrist. And it's just not, it's not what, it's not what we see very often. Wow. So you're saying you're in a business and there's cash flying and coming and going and you, you desperately need the job, but you, you, you should desperately look for another job because sitting 10 years in jail is a lot worse than looking for a job. Is that what you're saying? And there's nothing, there's nothing that's worth the risk of having this hanging over your head as even a possibility. When, when you see what actually, that there's a reason why I think these risks don't show up for people because... You know, there's many people don't get caught, but when, but when somebody, but when somebody does, your life's cracked open in a way you, you can't even begin, you can't even begin to describe the way a person is brought to their knees. There's nothing, there's nothing that possibly could be, could possibly be worth it. And that's why I, I think for people to realize that it doesn't matter if you if you didn't know, if it's something that was expected that you that you did know, you actually the onus is on you to actually know that the behavior that you're committing is 100% legal. And there is a sometimes let's have a, a, a human tendency to say, oh, if it's a great if it's a great area, it can't really really come back to bite me. Or if there's some way of explaining it, then it can't really be something that somebody's going to sit for be be taken away from their family for for many many years. And that's our our experience is that that's often not the case. Wow. Hey, you spoke about pressures. Um, wh what can we do to alleviate some of these pressures? I think so. On on the, you know, the approaches in terms of solutions. I think I think a few things. I think the the first thing is that we we have to begin to talk about it. Yes, and then you know, an Adelaide and a Fryzik away, but it does it does happen. By the way, there's no indication. Um, I think this is an important points when we, di we discuss this openly in our in our community there, there's no indication that there's some outsized problem that we have that we have in our community i think sometimes there's you know the way that the media portrays things you have you have people who all who all look the same and it there's sometimes a terrible bias that exists in the media and we don't we don't have to buy into that but it does it it does sometimes happen um so sadly we see we see sometimes that there's that there's that bias there, and it ignores it ignores you know the reality of what our communities truly look like. Rabbi the Gemara says, "Call me Melamed Umnis Listus." Do you think that some of these pressures are because many of our young have no education, they have no honest way to earn a living, they have to take the gray way out, and and is basically the Maimar Chazal just coming back to bite us on the back? The the highest level of this work, yes. You know, how how do we address this? What's the what's the solution? It exists on a number of levels, and they're they're all true. The very highest of them is that we need to cultivate genuine bitachon. We need to raise, and and there's no other way around it, because that that proposition has no place 
um, if there's a real genuine recognition that the Abishra is on the Mafarnas, everyone, and there, whatever is decreed for us for above, from above is, that's what's destined for us. And certainly by doing something improper, we're not somehow changing the Khajman and, in, and in increasing the Bracha. So to look at, to look at Parnasa as our, our Hishtadlus, or another way of saying that is, as making making a keli to contain the bracha that's that's meant for us. Um, so this is this is one level. I think you know we could we could talk on the level of of It's a little bit a, a little bit different. But to recognize that most of the time you know you'd be hard pressed to find a violation of you know U.S. financial law then isn't also on some level hurting somebody and and doesn't anyways in some way you know violate halacha. Um, what we're, what we're anyway striving, you know, the high standards that we're holding for ourselves in terms of how to, in terms of how to behave. So I think it is something though, it is something that needs to be taught, that the, there's, the valuable part, you're, say, you're saying that most of the crimes that, that they're going to catch somebody on are also hurting somebody. Yes. They're, they're in some way. Well, we talk about financial fraud, mortgage fraud. These are all things that there's somebody on the other end who's picking up the pieces yeah, of it. Yeah. When, the, when the mortgage goes bad and, and it doesn't get paid, the bondholder doesn't get paid, somebody got hurt. Exactly. The, the, bank, the, the bank is getting hurt. Perhaps other people who might be competing for the same loan are getting hurt. The loan was given to you over someone else. If you really, if you really break it down, uh, somebody's, somebody's being impacted. Somebody's being somebody's being harmed here. Okay, so, so, so your first one was ignorance, and you gave us a few examples, and a very powerful point that, you know, if you close your eyes and something bad is going, you could close your eyes and hype his market. The, uh, the government's going to say, you should have known. Not unlike Avi Melech, and the Tyra laughs at him, and the government is going to laugh at you too. So that was your yeah. first point. Your second point is, is that we need a little more Yerushachet because most financial crimes do hurt other people. Yeah, and we need right. to we need more more and Yerushchayim, which is why it's called four thirty-two. Okay, so what, and what's your third point? That, that's just two, two fabulous, valuable points. Leave us with one third point. Um, so I, I also we we need to talk about um, we need to talk about Yerushchayimish and the and the and the Sakana that um, you know that's I I think we we can talk about all three of these. When you, talk, when you talk about Yerusha Yenish, you're talking about from Kapishmaya, or you're talking about from the government, or the government maybe has a Shriya from Kapishmaya, which one, which of the above no, are you no, talking I'm about? Talking, I'm talking about this in terms of the government. And, and when you say we have to have Yerusha Yenish, what do you mean? Just explain that. It's to, understand, it's to understand the way that the system works, and the way that the, the, risks, the risks are not, are, are not Kadai, and the long, you know, the long arm and the long memory. And what it could do to the, your family as well. Yeah, and what it could, what it could do to your family. Um, it's, there's, there really isn't anything that seems to make that worth it. Do you think that, um, this should be discussed in yeshivas or it's not appropriate? Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to weigh in. I, you know, I think that's above, that's above my pay grade in terms of each yeshiva has to decide for themselves. What, what we're trying to do is to create ways that hopefully, um, feel appropriate and comfortable to, you know, Discuss this within within learning, within halacha, within hashkafa, within you know what our gedolim have taught us. So we're, for example, we're looking to publish a, a gillion lebnei yeshiva that would would raise would raise this discussion in a way that um, hopefully would feel very appropriate for for yeshivas. Um, 
certainly yeshivas that are are teaching um, general studies. There's, I think, so many ways that this could be woven in, whether it's in, you know, civics, whether it's learning history. There's so many ways that we could um, inculcate these these messages in a way that could possibly help help people have the right. There's a mix of it's both perspective that's really really important, um, but it's also it's information and and it's skills. It's the ability to to steer a difficult decision where the financially beneficial thing is not the same, you know, as as doing the right thing and to successfully to successfully navigate that decision. And I think what's what's interesting, you know, we spoke about the the third category of people who are in some way really intentional about about what they're doing. They're setting out to circumvent the system. And a lot of people cautioned us when we began to look into this that, you know, what, what are you going to tell somebody? They, they know better. What, how, what, what are you going to convince them? And the interesting thing was, is that when we really sat down with people and we listened to their, we listened to their story, it had often started at a very, a very young age with much smaller, more benign things. It didn't start with the big, huge partial. You know, I'm thinking of an attorney. Somebody shared with me recently the story that he was, he was eventually caught having taken huge amounts of money, millions of dollars out of the escrow account. So somebody with a, a 20, 25-year career, a highly, highly regarded attorney, and everybody was, was scratching their heads. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is 101. You know this, you know, day one of, day one of law school. Like, how does this, how does this happen? How does this even, how does this even come to be? But when you get into the, you know, the kishkas of the story, there's something that happens very, very on. Taka, you know, almost the day, the day out of law school that was, you know, perhaps could be justified, perhaps not, perhaps was, perhaps was proper. And we see that small things really, really make an enormous difference. Um, this is very incremental. There's risk creep where a person, you know, becomes comfortable with the previous level of risk and then and then ups the ante. We, we see it play out. And then all of a sudden it comes to the point where, as, as someone shared with me, I had dug myself, a, he said he, he dug himself a 10-foot hole and he only had a, a two-foot ladder. Where he finds himself in a position that he had never... So we need to train ourselves. You know, the government has, when, when they're investigating finances, there's what's called an SAR, a suspicious activity report where, you know, if a certain type of transaction is triggered, then there's somebody who gets, who's notified and an investigator makes a decision, you know, does this require to, for it to be looked? Do I need to hold somebody's emails? Do I need to get bank records? Or is this something, you know, not, not to look in any further? We need to strengthen our own internal SAR, that if we're presented with these with these situations, and everybody inevitably is going to be. Um, the, the work really has to be done in advance to make sure that we're fortified to navigate that situation successfully. In, in, in the thrust of it, when you're faced, you know, with the taiva, it's very, very. It could be. It could be very, very difficult. And then one of the things we've learned is that people need to really think these through and come to a clear decision. This is something. This is something that I'm. I'm not going to do and understand, understand why it's wrong, it's unhealthy, and run, run in the opposite direction. And if we can reach people at an, at an early age, if we could reach them when they're developing, it's, it's, it's almost too late to begin to think about this, you know, when somebody's already 
facing Tirtas Aparnasa is already trying to raise a family and hasn't hasn't developed an approach to these to these issues. Prabhlevi, thank you very much for your time. And the Bani Shalom should give you the Kayach. Halavai should be Matzliach, the best. An ounce of prevention is a pound of cure. You probably you probably wish that Aleph went out of business, don't you? That's that's the goal. That's the goal that we be. It's a Chag Hagula. It's a perfect time to have this conversation. That's it. We should we should be truly be bnei chayin that there isn't even you know something that's hanging over us it's with true menuchas anafesh. Amen. 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 A good evening. Joining us from New York is Willie Rapfogel, who has a most fascinating story to share with us, a poignant story that I think is really relevant for this program. Welcome, Willie. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this and for working with Aleph and all the others who are trying to help both people who are incarcerated, going through different stages of the criminal justice system, and who want to prevent having ever, ever having to go through the criminal justice system. So tell us, Willie, share with us your story. Be so generous. Sure. Baruch Hashem, I, um, I did a lot of very interesting things in my life and was in the process of, of doing um, some tremendous chesed with an organization that I helped build from a relatively small not-for-profit into a, a really giant not-for-profit that uh, provided help and financial assistance to thousands of people, food to thousands of people, provided home care to 3,000 elderly people every day, many of them Jews, and built 2,000 units of housing for needy people. Um, oh, how, many years during, did that, how many years did that take you to do? I spent two decades. Doing wow. That. Built 2,000 units. Yes. If you be the mayor of New York, you can't build anything. Thank you. And, and in fact, we, we were probably, the, we were the only people who built on housing authority land. We built a senior residence in Queens for um, low-income elderly people on the Pominock Housing Authority Project. And nobody's been able to do anything on the Housing Authority Project since, or well, before. Anyway. You, you, you did chesed in a world-class manner. So, Baruch Hashem, I was able to do a lot of chesed. And, uh, you know, you have to own your mistakes. And one of the things that you, when anybody makes a mistake in life, you have to accept fact that you made that mistake and you have to recognize it and you have to do the shuva for that mistake. So tell, us the, the, tell us the story of the mistake, like what happened. You got to knock sure. on the door. Walk us through the story. So, okay. Uh, well, there's a, a couple of different pieces to the mistake and some history to the mistake, but uh, let me just go right to the mistake. During the course of running this organization, probably after 15 years of doing it, um, and during that period of time, I have very little to do with the financial, uh, there's a chief financial officer very well experienced or the risk management, meaning the insurance side, and this really revolves in the insurance side of the of the uh, organization. Um, when I started at the organization in 1992, it was a relatively small uh, 5 to $10 million nonprofit organization. And I had built it over the years to an organization of between $150 million Hundred to one hundred fifty million dollar annual operating budget, and at different times a um, capital budget, meaning construction, that ranged anywhere from five million to one point sixty million for a project uh, of assisted living. Anyway, so during the period of time that I was there, um, we had a board committee which was headed up by somebody who had been general counsel of New York State's insurance department, and he would review the bids for our insurance and would then recommend it. And regularly, 
the same insurance broker would win the bids because he understood the organization. It was very responsive and effective. And during the course of my first 15 years there, I would recommend him to other people because we seemed to do very well with him. The, the review process, which had a very professional person in charge of it, um, went very well. And uh, two major construction firms would end up taking him, about a dozen significant nonprofit organizations and, and others as well. Anyway, in 2009, 2010, I'm there more than 15 years, he comes to me and he says, you know, you have done unbelievable, great stuff for my business. It's not, not anything to do with Med Council, but with uh, these recommendations. And I want to pay you a commission because I want you to continue to recommend us. And as, as people have, they have a moment of weakness, a moment of greed. And that was the moment that I failed. Why? Very why, why can't you take a commission if you recommend a construction company at, to an insurance at, guy? Right. So at, at the very least, number one, I should have said, okay, this has to be done completely by the book. We need to put it in writing. I need to be paid. Taxes taken out. And, and I should have gone to my board and said, listen, I, I'm going to do this with this guy unless you tell me I have a major problem with it. should have done all of that. And had I done all of that, this wouldn't have, all would not have happened. But I accepted his recommendation to take cash and not pay taxes on it. And that opened the door for the resulting nightmare that was to come. So now here are the other pieces in the background of the story that are important to it. Number one, around 1988 or 1999, a state senator in Washington Heights, who would later become attorney general and the person who led the prosecution against me, made a commitment to the Jewish Community Council of Washington Heights of a $50,000, what was called member item grant that they would give, that the state would give to that council. The council came to us and asked to advance the grant, which is something we typically did with the smaller Jewish community councils that didn't have their own ability to, you know, have, have an ability to go to the banks and borrow. So we began advancing the money. After we'd spent about 15 of the 50,000, we began to tell her we needed paperwork to, to demonstrate that there was a real grant there. And at that point, she got back to me at one point and said, well, State Senator Schneiderman had a fit when we questioned him on this. I subsequently called him out at a meeting in a nice way. Uh, there was a local community council legislative event. And in front of other people, I thanked them for you know, coming up with a $50,000 grant. But I had confirmed with the Senate Majority Leader's office that there was no such grant in the budget. He went nuts cursed me, whatever. And that set it into stage the, the ill feelings, which would ultimately, again, come to be a problem. The last piece, which is extremely important, is that prior to my going to work for this organization, and unbeknownst to me, until everything exploded, my predecessor, the chief financial officer, and the insurance broker, and this is at a time when the organization was relatively small, were skimming money from the insurance bills. I don't know how much it was. Yeah, probably will never know because the attorney general's office sought to exaggerate everything. So it's very hard to, you know, to make anything out of it. And plus, I didn't have access to my records because they completely wouldn't give me any access to my records. And these guys were skimming this insurance money. Now, in the beginning, when the budget was $5 million, $10 million, it probably wasn't a significant amount of money. As the organization grew, the amount of money grew. Uh, around 2011, our board chairman gets a letter 
turned out that it was some disgruntled person who works for the insurance broker saying that there's something going on, skimming and so on. So our chairman gives me the letter and says, could you please investigate it? Which I did. Now, at that time, we had a new CFO and I didn't feel that he'd be able to drill deep enough. So I went to our independent auditors who had been the independent auditors for about four years at that point, and they drilled down and found nothing. And then another letter came in 2013, which would ultimately lead to things coming out about the skimming. Now, the board chairman told my lawyer, I don't know that he did tell the, the prosecutors. Uh, I have no way of knowing it. I, I think he was told to shut up by, by his lawyer. But the board chairman told my lawyer that there is no way that I was involved in the skimming. Had I been involved when I got the original letter in 2011, I would have never gone to the um, independent orders because had I been involved, why would I take a chance they would find out? I would stick with the new CFO who knows nothing and, and let him come back and say there was nothing there. So that, if you're following, combined, created this incentive for the prosecutors, the attorney general who hated me, to essentially have these three individuals who originally came in and told a story which essentially said that I wasn't involved in the, in the, in the, the scheme. But eventually, they would change their story, all three singing the same tune, that I was the ringleader, even though it began before I was there. And my, the defense of, you know, well, I took commissions and didn't pay taxes on it, just fed into them saying, oh, you know, that just shows how greedy you were, according to the prosecutors. So, you know, that ultimately led to my accepting a plea bargain. Now, one of the reasons why people accept plea bargains is because the prosecutor threatens you with a sentence that will be 10 times greater than the plea bargain. And just to give you a little bit of, of facts in terms of what's uh, happening in this country, both federally and statewide, in 1985, 20% of cases went to trial, 80% were resolved by plea bargains. Now, prosecutors and judges discovered that if you threaten a defendant with multiples of the sentence, if they go to trial, They'll grab plea bargains whether or not they're guilty, and even if they're guilty of something relatively minor. And that's an important message, not just in terms of my case, but in terms of any case. Obviously, if the prosecutor hates you, that's only compounding things. But even if the prosecutor doesn't hate you and has an opportunity to get convictions, because at the end of the day, prosecutors, even honest ones, want to have a good prosecution record, which means convictions. And to get convictions in this country, instead of 20% of the cases going to trial, only 2.5% of cases, state and federal, go to trial. And just to give you an, uh, an, another number uh, that, that's probably somewhat shocking to anybody, is more than 100 million criminal cases are filed in state and federal courses every, courts every year. 97.5% of those cases end in pleas. And this is in a country where the right to trial is in the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution as well as in the Bill of Rights. So anybody who thinks they're doing something relatively minor and they shouldn't get caught has no idea the power of a prosecutor to take that relatively minor thing and come back to you and say, well, if you don't plead guilty and take a two-year two sentence or a five-year sentence, I'm going to put you away for 50 years. Is now, that what they told you? They'd put you away for 50 years? 30 years. For taking for taking cash for a commission, which for a commission, if you no, had disclosed, would be okay. Would have been okay. But what they did is they turned it into much more. They turned it into three other people getting lesser sentences by saying I was the ringleader. So they were able to threaten them because they wanted 
my case, you know, to be the headline case. So, you know, the idea that somebody thinks that, oh, I'm not doing anything so bad. But let me give you an illustration. Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate to work for a guy by the name of Howard Jonas. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he, he does incre incredible chesed every single day that, that will blow your mind. Um, a little over a decade ago, he and his wife decided they were going to visit people in prison. And they went to visit two guys that Aleph suggested they visit. They never knew them, no, no clue who they were. And they went up to Otisville federal case, visiting these two guys. They told them their story. Their story was that both of them were in the real estate business. They had legitimate land in Florida and South Beach that they owned, that they got investors for. But in filing for the investment vehicle, they filed with the SEC. And both of them about different issues, one was about a conviction, one was about education, lied on the SEC form. Now, among all the issues, I guess, in Mazel is timing, in Muckham's modern Lushen. In their case, the timing was terrible because this was around the 2008 collapse of the economy. And, you know, prosecutors were looking to catch people that they could make an example of. So they went to these guys, the prosecutors, and said, we'll give you five to seven years if you plead guilty. These guys, really legitimate, other than the stupidity of lying on these forms, that what are you crazy for lying about our background? They went to court. They each got 85 years, 85 years. They ended up serving 13 years before their sentences were commuted in 2020. Wow. So again, again, don't think anybody who's listening, tonight, don't think for a second that if you think you're doing something relatively minor, the worst is going to happen. I'll get a slap on the wrist. I'll have to pay a fine. I'll have to pay some interest. It doesn't work that way. If the prosecutor wants to make a case, excuse the expression, but it, you know, it's kind of said all over the, the you can indict a ham sandwich. So in addition to, to trying to warn people about what happens and what can happen, there's also the part and and this my Rebbe Rib David Feinstein's Ethnic said to me before I went away, he said, You you be a rod of Shalom and you set examples for people. And it was incredibly difficult in the beginning. The first Friday night in Rikers, I can tell you that I I just tried my eyes out. But at a certain point I was singing Lakhadodi to myself. I I just felt that there was just Hashem was there. I, I, I don't know how to describe it other way. And that basically really inspired me to go forward, to try to set a good example, not to be bitter, not to be angry, but to try to do things that would both help other Jews that were behind bars going forward, to try to better myself, to learn. I actually made a few siyamim, which I had not done for many, many years before that. Um, during Yom Tovim, I mean, to, to make Sadarim for people who might otherwise never have had a, a Seder. And then there's, there's one story that the first chance I got to visit um, after I'd gotten out to be with my son in Farakaway, I was folding my talus after davening in the morning um, and putting it away. And my son and, and two grandsons had already gone to the Kiddush. And this man comes over to me and he says, are you Willie Rapfogel? I said, yes. And, you know, when you're first shortly out of, out of prison, you're very, 
nervous about what people are going to say. I mean, there have been people who've cursed me and, and, and things like that because they believe everything they read. But anyway, he comes over and says, I have to tell you a story. And he says, a few years ago, when my mother passed away, I decided to leave the business that I was in. And she owned some buildings in the Buffalo area. And instead of a management company, I would go and manage these buildings. Because I go up first time wearing a baseball cap because it's, you know, very low income area. It's not some place that Jews would be properly welcome. And they go, you know, talking to some people to get this lay of the land. And a couple of people told him, you know, you have to meet Monster. Monster is the guy who really runs this this place and whatever two hundred, three hundred apartments. And everybody's like, This is the mayor of, of, of this part of Buffalo. So he he scheduled an appointment for the next time to come up to meet this guy, Monster. He, he knocks on the door, comes into a very nicely furnished apartment in this essentially slum area. And there are about three or four people there. And one guy who's like a giant, like he probably looks like a wrestler. And, uh, you know, he immediately notices, he assumes that's Monster. And he says, well, you know, I was told that you're the person I need to talk to. Now, as he walks into the apartment, he takes off his hat and he's wearing a yarmulke. And Monster says to him, do you know Willie Rapfogel? And this guy, like, his eyes pop open. He says, I don't know him, but his son lives around the corner from me in Queens. And Monster says, have a seat. Do you want a coffee or anything? The guy says, all of a sudden, the place became warm. He felt like he was, you know, a friend. And he was, like, treated beautifully. And Monster says, let me just tell you, this is, this is how I know Willie Rapfogel. He goes, we used to work out in the yard sometimes together. And I asked him a question when I had six months left to go in my sentence. I was offered an opportunity to be involved in some credit card scams for when I came out. And I said to him, I said, what do you think? Should I, should I do it? Because, you know, you're a Jewish guy. You know, you know these things. And I said, how long have you been in? And he said, about seven years, eight years. And I said to him, technology has changed. Whatever you think you can get away with, with these credit cards, there's no way in the world you're going to get away with it. He goes, I took what he said to heart. And when I got out, I told his friends, no, forget it. I'm not doing it. A couple of months after he gets out, those little friends all get arrested. And he goes, that would have been me. I would have been back. He goes, if not for him, I would have been back. And I have to, I'm standing there and I'm like crying because that little conversation led to this guy feeling that he was treated well when he went up to Buffalo to, to manage these properties. And it's like, it astounded me. I mean, it was, this was Rib David's work. It's being a road of Shalom and treating people well and being essentially trying to be Kiddush Hashem in a place where there's very little Kiddush Hashem. How, how long were you in jail for? So I was in prison for 16 months and then in what was called work release for about another 16 months. How did it affect your family? Baruch Hashem, my family is remarkable. I mean, to, you know, to talk about people and, you know, family is just, I mean, I can't describe enough. My wife, my three sons, my grandchildren have all been just incredible. I mean, essentially, they know who I am. And the experience didn't make them angry. One or two of them got bullied a little bit. But you know what? They they stood up, they stood their ground. And my sons, my daughters-in-law, just been unbelievable. I've been remarkable. And you also, I mean, Rebruven Feinstein told me, you find out who your friends are. People you thought were your friends, you find out were not your friends. 
people you didn't have an inkling about what good friends they were become like precious jewels that they come through and they do things and they they're always available they're always there to help i mean there's one person came to visit me every other week no matter where i was every other week he was there on visiting day just i mean the 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 chesed, the goodness of people is what stands out. And, you know, you have to you have to look at that, but you don't want to find out. Nobody should come to do anything that will put them in a position where they have to find out who their friends are. What a powerful story. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for being there and, and listening. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, and there's so much that people can do. I mean, not only to not do anything that might endanger them or their family members, but they can help. They can advocate for people who are in prison or who need people to advocate for them because there's always that. There's visiting people. There's writing. There's pentail programs through all of the groups like Sedek who also do phenomenal work. There are non-Jewish groups that do phenomenal work that people can be helpful for. I mean, there are programs that I know that Aleph is in the midst of working on to help people who are re-entering society so that they can have help with resumes and help with introductions so that they can get jobs that are basically not being a cashier in a supermarket, especially for people who are, are qualified to be able to do more. Um, so people can really make that stretch. The Jewish community can do more in terms of helping people who have paid a very difficult price. And, and to bear in mind also that their family is paying a difficult price, not just when they come out, but while they're away. Thank you very much. Joining us from Miami is Mrs. Rachel Van Etten. She's the chief executive officer of Aleph, um, the amazing, angelic, incredible Aleph organization. Welcome, Ms. Van Etten. Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell us, tell us the layman, what is the mission of Aleph? What, what purpose do you serve? Yes, the Aleph Institute, our mission statement is no one alone, no one forgotten. And what Aleph Institute does is provide a host of services for people who are isolated from their regular community environments, um, whether that's people serving in the military, which is a branch of our work, and we do chaplaincy work there, or whether it's people, which is, and this is the broader section of our work, who are impacted in some way by, by the criminal justice system in the United States. And the scope of programs we do spans the full continuum of the experience of being incarcerated, as well as what families go through. Um, sometimes that's a host of emotional support services, social support services, financial assistance, children's programs, and intensive work within the prison space, uh, working with chaplains to make sure that they have the resources they need to serve their Jewish communities, um, as well as working more broadly in issues of criminal justice reform and policy in the United States. A large portion of our work focuses on Jewish education for people who are incarcerated, um, as well as a large portion which focuses on advocacy, alternative sentencing, and other broader issues that might impact people from all walks of life who are incarcerated. So here's my question. If, if I was a mentor of yours and you came to me and you said, you know, now that I want to go work for Aleph, this is what they do, I would look at you and I would say, you know, you're not going to get any covered from it. You're not going to get paid by anybody for it. Why would anybody take such a job? You know, it's an interesting question. I was not aware of Aleph before I started with them. And what motivates me and what drew me to the work and what motivates me every day is having seen 
the broad range of what happens to people um, if they get in trouble with the law. And as I got more involved in the work, I started to realize how easy it is to be just on the same side of the bars as they are. There's a saying, there but for the grace of God go I, and I have never seen it more strongly than in this work. And most people who don't have an experience with it, who have not, who have been fortunate not to be affected in any way, may feel that there's a very strong dichotomy between people who commit crimes and are punished and, so to speak, the rest of society. A lot of my work here has shown that so many times people don't necessarily realize what they're doing is against the law and inadvertent choices or even intentional choices can oftentimes be, you know, decisions or activities or things that people have done uh, in the moment. They, you know, they may have been under duress. They may have had family factors that made them make decisions that were not necessarily in line with the law. And the impact of how families are then the collateral damage that people experience as a result um, has humbled me and it keeps me going every day. Can you share with us one or two stories? Um, one or two stories. So I had been working with someone who was a Shiva Bakr, and then I guess he had become married at that point. He was a young man, and he got involved working with a mortgage company around home loans, uh, particularly I think this was around early 2008 or you know a little bit leading up to that or perhaps a little bit afterwards after that um, mortgage and financial crisis. And he had a young family, a young wife. I think he had a child at home, and he had no under he had no knowledge. He was working as a, as a, as a, I think he was a mortgage officer. He had really no knowledge of what had, what his actions or how he'd operated in that space had ultimately led to some mortgages that were not a hundred percent kosher, I guess. Uh, what was so compelling to me was that he really didn't know. Um, he had, you know, this was a community job. He knew somebody who employed him and and he had this involvement with the law. And um, I don't recall... How many, how, many, how many years did he get? I don't recall what his sentence had ended up becoming. I know we were involved in, in some work on an alternative for him, but I don't remember what ended up happening. And, wh at the and what impact did it have on his family, on him, et cetera? This became something that they were so impacted um, socially, economically. You know, he had a young wife, he had a child, his wife wasn't working. Um, the community saw this and as many communities do, kind of turned away um, from the family or felt that there had been some intentional desire to, to be fraudulent in some way. And the most challenging experience for his family and for all many, many families that go through this was the financial burden. They were not people of wealth, so they needed to develop uh, some type of defense and, and work within the legal system. And the shame that they felt, that the family felt, um, as a result of these actions, it, like many families, was was pervasive, and it, it the effects are really deep. You no, know, I, I have a hargashi. You know, I've spoken many times about the importance of inviting a, a yasim and an almana, and I think maybe we should, our listeners should make a commitment to invite some a family that's struggling through some type of a, a criminal justice system, an incarceration issue. That would be an incredible thing for for your listeners. I think the rate of incarceration in the country is expounding so quickly 
that it is likely that many people will know somebody who has been affected by the criminal justice system. And like many of these things that happen, they may be afraid to reach out, they might be afraid or but what about, about Rahul, what about they say that, you know, the law is fear, innocence, or proven guilty. So why don't people have a, a good chance against a prosecutor if they're really innocent? It's a good question. But we do say, and it is true, that people are innocent until proven guilty. Prosecutors are motivated. The United States justice system is motivated to getting a person to do, to take a plea bargain. And that's because the number of cases that cross the desks of these judges is simply unmanageable if everybody were to go to trial. So it is not possible for them to, to actually try every person in a jury trial. Instead, the prosecutor and the justice system itself is motivated to incentivize a, pre, a plea deal. So in order to motivate that, you really have to start stacking up the risks of going to trial. So a prosecutor might look at an event that happened and consider how do they add to these sentences or these charges in order to then offer, let's say, if you have many charges and a prosecutor wants you to take a plea deal, they might say that they will then drop a charge or two charges or three charges if you, go to, if you take a plea deal. And you can't do that if there's only one charge. So there really is an incentive to have multiple charges to elevate the risk so that it is highly, highly beneficial for the person to take a plea deal, even if they have factors that relate to their innocence that would otherwise be heard in a trial. And how do they do that? How do they add charges if the person only did one action? The criminal code in the United States is, is so expansive, um, and I don't know all of it, and I don't think you'll find many people if at all, who are experts in every aspect of the criminal code. Um, so I, there are so many factors and details of crimes or charges that can be similar between, the, for example, if, if somebody is, is, is involved in some type of fraudulent activity that crosses state lines. And so it's not just an issue because there was fraud in a financial arrangement, all of a sudden, because it crosses state lines, it becomes an additional charge. Um, sometimes if it involves a person who's a senior, there are additional charges. There are ways that these charges are stacked um, in order to achieve these types of outcomes. So tell us a, a story of how you've made a difference. A story of how I've made a difference. I, I'm not the kind of person who looks at these big splashy cases and says, this is the one that hit the news and we changed everything. We have those. All of us involved in cases that have been sensationalized. From time to time, we don't, we don't try to do that, but we don't try to make cases be sensationalized. But what I see when I think about a case that I've made a difference, I think about the person in prison who has no one to talk to, who has no reason for living. And instead of passing along that call to somebody else or trying to figure out how to get off the phone as quickly as I can, just spending the time talking to that person, understanding what they're going through, giving them encouragement to go through another day. To me, those are the biggest wins. It's the every day, the little things that we do to make each day better and ultimately to get that person through and past the ordeal that they're in so that they can rebuild their life. Okay, but tell me, tell us some stories about how Aleph has made differences in sentencing. You know, an example of a case that, you know, we've had a lot of success working with cases after COVID hit with uh, the CARES Act, which allowed 
people who were, had elevated risk for COVID to come home early and to serve time on, on home confinement. And so it was remarkable. Uh, we worked around the clock, um, even over, over Shabbos, because these were life-threatening issues, to file and encourage individuals to file requests for home confinement so that as many people as possible who were at risk of COVID and who were safe to be released, and there are regulations around it, were able to then come home. And the number of stories people we've worked with, there's one, there's one man we worked with who his wife was severely um, ill. She was medically compromised and she was going through a pretty intensive medical uh, procedures and she had no one around to be there for her to help her through this. She she herself, you know, was bedridden. Um, she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't really do much of anything. And through the work with the CARES with the CARES Act, especially in this case, we were able to show that the unexpected risk of COVID nineteen had created so much challenge in the family that her husband was allowed to go home. Not only and Really, I think his own risk was low for COVID itself, but he was able to go home to be the caretaker for his wife. Yeah, so there was a young woman who had a relatively minor role with a company that was involved, unfortunately, in some healthcare fraud, and she had not been herself very aware of what was going on. She was really a secretary of sorts in the organization, and when her superiors had been charged... They had each chosen to take a plea deal. Each got between three to five years or something to that effect. But she was a young single woman, a single mother. Her children were young. And she and she also didn't have any direct engagement in the, in the fraudulent behavior that had taken place. So she chose to go to trial because she couldn't imagine being away from her children for that no, long. She, and, and, to, no and I know the story. So she had she was a minor figure. She had no benefit. She was an employee in a company where the bosses were doing illegal things and making a lot of money. She didn't make anything. She just made her salary. And what happened That's at right. trial? Well, so at trial, she ended up being convicted and she got a sentence of 20 years. And it was unfathomable. It, it, the idea, you know, with that sentence, she would have never seen her kids until they were at least in their 30s. Um, and Olive recognized the injustice and worked on the case extensively. And ultimately, it was, we were successful. I'm very proud of that. She was able to go back to her children who had, she had been away for probably about three years, two to three years at that point, perhaps a little longer. Um, and she was able to reunite with her children. I, you know, her daughter was maybe seven when she left and we heard her daughter was just, she would cry on the phone. She would beg her mother to please just let her stay with her. She would, she would go to prison with her. She would, she was bargaining. She was trying anything she could because this was her, she didn't have other, you know, she was a single mom and this was her mother. Um, so, Knowing that we were able to keep to bring this family back together, it was just so incredible. And you know, we see the risk that when someone is a child with a parent who's incarcerated, they have a much higher risk of themselves being involved in the justice system. Being able to get involved to get this this mother home, to get her back with her family, to help rebuild the family relationship, that helped save generations of trauma from continuing and you know, and God forbid, having other 
engagement with the justice system. She came home soon enough that she was able to, to rebuild. What would you like your listeners to take away from this interview? I think the most important things to take away, there's two, there's two things. First of all, we often negotiate internally on ourselves in how we think we might make a decision or why a decision is acceptable, why a little, little fudge here and there maybe on our income, you know, what we're, our stated income on a credit card application, maybe a little bit, oh, we didn't necessarily put something in a tax return. You know, this stuff all sounds so benign at times. It can't sound benign. We can rationalize it. The bottom line is, I mean, Perky Avers says it best. There's an eye that sees, there's an ear that hears, and it's all written down in a book. Having the right type of yes mind for your listeners, it's, it's not a small task. It's actually quite Herculean, and I encourage your listeners to think deeply um, about the little things, because it's not the big things. We don't, none of us think that we're going to be criminals, God forbid. Um, but sometimes the little things, they creep in and, and life is hard and we have challenges and we have that temptations. And staying true to that, keeping that Yoshimayim is just absolutely critical. Um, the second thing I'd say to your listeners is we don't know what families are going through. We don't know, you know, the details behind a situation, behind a case, behind a charge. Most of all, try to be there for each other instead of shunning a family that's affected. When a person is returning to the community, See if there's a way to give them a second chance. Maybe you have an opportunity to employ them in a way that gives them a sense of accomplishment and is also safe for your business. Think about ways to allow people, after they've done their teshuva, to return back to the community and to continue to be productive and to continue to be a part of, of our society. Ultimately, leaving people outside of society, leaving people otherized and not bringing them back into find jobs, to find a place to live, to support them in the community is much more harmful in the broader, in our broader sense. And so this actually is not just a matter of Avas Yisrael. This isn't just a matter of being there for our neighbors. This is for those of your listeners who may be interested in, in risk and punishment and all of these more punitive factors of our justice system. Doing this actually makes communities safer, actually makes us all safer together instead of ostracizing each other. Ms. Annette, this was beautiful, and Jubani Shalom should give you kayak to keep doing your really amazing work. Amen. Thank you so much for having me. Kalta. Bye-bye.